Hello and welcome to another episode of Victor's Corner. I am your host, Victor Omoyo, one half of the Codex Prime podcast. And today is Wednesday, December 27th, 2017. And I am so glad to be back here. This is the uh, two-week hiatus of the main Codex Prime podcast. But as promised in last week's episode with AWOL, shoutouts to you, my friend, um, I have returned uh, during the break to provide my list of top 20 favorite films of 2017. Now, before I get into that, uh, I do want to um, uh, give a give a couple quick reminders. First, um, we will be back at, as the Codex Prime podcast in uh, two weeks' time on, on Tuesday, January 9th. I want to say January 9th. Let me look up the calendar. I could be wrong here. I, sometimes I get my dates uh, mixed up here. I should I should have had this prepared, but you know what? You know, sometimes you just got to roll with the punches. But um, if my calc- if my calendar is right, then yes, I was right. Yes, we will be back uh, uh, Tuesday, January 9th. So that's uh, two weeks time, uh, two weeks from yesterday. So we'll be back with an all new episode of the Codex Prime podcast. Um, in the meantime, you can all you can always check out our Awesome episodes from this year, especially last week. Now that The Last Jedi is in theaters, you can check out uh, last week's episode, which we had AWOL guest star, uh, guest, uh, yeah, guest star on our, on our episode. And uh, we talked about uh, how awesome The Last Jedi is. Now, I'll, I'll get into more, more of my thoughts of that film uh, later on because, spoiler alert, it happens to be in my top 20 favorite films of the year. Then again, anybody who knows me being a Star Wars fan, I mean, come on, look, look at my shirt for God's sakes. I mean, it's no surprise that it would be on my list. But um, getting into the uh, list of uh, top 20 uh, favorite films of 2017, I, you know, looking at, looking at this year, this year has been rather rather exciting for film you know you know there you have a lot of, you had a lot of unique uh, uh feature films that came out this year as well as some great documentaries and you know we've there are certain films that have managed that have come out this year that have managed to push the envelope creatively as well as some films that uh, have not only been sequels to you know well-established films from decades past but also still managed to introduce a new perspective in uh, from from long-standing franchises that have been around for like three, four decades, or even more, and you know, looking at how how creative uh, certain filmmakers have been this year, you know, twenty seventeen has been just a just a just just a treasure a treasure trove of riches, you know, for all sorts of. Uh, cinematic tastes so whether or not so whether you're a fan of art house cinema or just you know mainstream popcorn munching fare this year has got you covered and before i get into my top 20 favorite films of the year i do want to mention some honorable mentions and uh these following 24 films did not make my top 20 uh list of favorite films of the year but these films are still worth very much worth your time and several of these i did re- i did review on the podcast as well. So the honorable mentions of 2017 include 1922, which you can find on Netflix, starring Thomas Jane, uh, Baby Driver, which is Edgar Wright's latest film, The Big Sick, The, the Disaster Artist, which I reviewed a couple weeks ago, uh, First They Killed My Father, a powerful film about the Khmer Rouge uh, on Netflix, the Girl with All the Gifts, a unique size, a, a unique post-apocalyptic sci-fi feature. Uh, Girls Trip, which is hilarious. Hidden Figures, Ingrid Goes West, It, 
one of the best Stephen King adaptations out there. It Comes at Night, Julietta, The Lost City of Zed, Loving Vincent, The Mayor Witt Stories, New and Selected, another Netflix film uh, starring Dustin Hoffman, Adam Sandler, and Ben Stiller. And this is actually a good Adam Sandler movie. You know, Adam Sandler, you know, he does have dramatic chops. You know, when he's not doing BS movies like The Ridiculous Six or Jack and Jill, he proves that he does have some range. And you know what? I like to see more dramatic fare from Adam Sandler in the future. I still think that his best movie is Punch Drunk Love, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, Some other honorable mentions include Mudbound, Patterson, Patty Cakes, Raw, The Salesman, Spider-Man Homecoming, Split, A United Kingdom, and Wind River. So these uh, these films are very much worth your time. These are, these are the, fil- the 24 films that, uh, that just missed the cut for my top 20 favorite films of the year. But again, um, very, very worthwhile uh, checking these films out. Now, as far as uh, documentaries go, um, this year has been, has seen, has seen some tremendous uh, films in the documentary, you know, nonfiction genre, and and before I give my my favorite my one favorite documentary this year, there are ten honorable mentions in the uh, documentary category as well that you guys should take a look at as well. Uh, one documentary that you can find on Hulu called Batman and Bill, uh, which is the story of how um, uh, Bill Finger uh, finally got his. Uh, do credit as being the co-creator of Batman, not just Bob Kane. Uh, Chasing Coral, which is a you know uh, eye-opening and rather heartbreaking documentary about the uh, damages that that has been wreaked upon the coral coral reefs across the globe, which is on Netflix. Uh, the Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson. This one is a very powerful documentary about a uh, LGBT icon. Five Came Back which is based on uh, Mark Harris's book of the same name, which features uh, five World War II-era filmmakers. Uh, I Am Not Your Negro, uh, awesome documentary on James Baldwin by Raoul Peck. Nobody, Nobody Speak, Trials of the Free Press, another Netflix documentary, which, fe- which focuses on uh, Hulk Hogan's uh, Gawker uh, trial, among other things. One of Us. Now, this is a unique documentary. This one is about the uh, Hasidic Jewish community in New York and how three uh, three former members managed to, you know, get away from that community and the effects of their lives as a result. Uh, another documentary which uh, didn't make my favorite documentary uh, uh, pick surprisingly is Rat Film, which I reviewed a few weeks ago on the podcast. Rat Film is a very uh, it's a very distinct documentary, and uh, and hopefully it'll be made more widely available on other streaming platforms like Amazon or Netflix because this one is very this one is very very good. Um, there's also two documentary uh, miniseries which were which were featured on television, which which uh, which I also recommend. Uh, one is Time, the Khalif Browder story, and this this uh, this five or six part documentary series is about. Uh, the tragic story of Khalif Browder, who was a young black young black man who was um, imprisoned in Rikers Island for allegedly stealing someone's backpack, and um, the variety of injustices that he went through, and tragically he took his own life uh, back in 2015, and his mother passed away just last year, and this documentary is it, it, this documentary really pissed me off because you know there's so many 
there's just so many uh, avenues that Khalif's, Khalif Broderick's life could have gone, more positive directions, if only, if only I guess he had the the support system that that he needed, or if only more could have been done for him. I suppose. Like I had a lot of questions about the documentary and um, and about how what more could have been done to save him, but it's very much a. A, a, a documentary series that's worth your time. It is streaming on on Netflix as well, and it definitely proves that you know we have a lot to work on as far as our criminal justice system goes, especially in terms of race. And last but not least, uh, another extraordinary documentary series is Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's uh, series, The Vietnam War, which was ten years in the making. And uh, this documentary series is a 10-part series which was streaming on PBS, and I believe you can still find it on, on PBS's website, but if not, it's also available on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, this documentary, The Vietnam War, uh, chronicles the uh, the various causes, the root causes and the, and the ongoing effects of the Vietnam War, how it affected not only the Vietnamese and also the people who fought for the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army, but also uh, for the American troops, some of who, some who are involved, who are interviewed in the film, who are involved uh, as young men fighting that conflict, as well as uh, innocent people or civilians, rather, on both sides. And 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 this this was a very extraordinary work and this was a film that is de- a, a fi- well i call it a film because like all ken burns ken burn documentaries are basically 18 to 20 hour multi-part epics and and the vietnam war as a whole is an 18 hour film and it 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 was definitely an education in that whole uh conflict in that period in american history uh, much most of the the effects of which are still felt to this day and if you are if you're any if you're a history buff or someone who someone who someone who's always wanted to learn more about the Vietnam War but just did, just didn't just didn't in school for, or for some reason then this is a documentary that I absolutely recommend. Um, so that's the documentary by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, The Vietnam War. Absolutely worth your time. Um, before I get into my number one documentary film, I see Carl has chimed in on the chat. He says that I am late. Yes, I am late, Carl. Uh, for uh, due to um, eh, some little little bit of technical hiccups on my end, but um, I did I did say I did post uh, that um, there was a slight change in the time that I would start at six thirty instead of six o'clock. But I am here. I thank you for tuning in, Carl, and whoever else uh, decides to pop up on the chat. Very much appreciated. Uh, my favorite documentary this year, my number one, is a documentary that you can find on Amazon Prime. So if you're an Amazon Prime uh, a user, you can watch this for free on their service. And it's called City of Ghosts. City of Ghosts is a documentary directed by uh, Matthew Heineman. And uh, it's a documentary about this uh, Syrian uh, journalist group called Raqqa is Being Slaughtered Silently. And it's about how this uh, this group of underground journalists have managed to uh, uh, report and uh, and secretly uh, record footage of ISIS and how they invaded uh, the the town of Ra- Syrian town of Raqqa and how they've managed to uh, you know keep the people in that town under siege and all the horrible atrocities that they've committed like public executions propaganda um, pro ISIS propaganda and 
it's a it's a very unsettling documentary, and but I think it's absolutely necessary because this this documentary does not shy away from the atrocities that ISIS has committed and still does to this day, and and it shows just how just how necessary and how extraordinary and how risky you know the field of journalism is, especially when you have you know you know power parties in power that ser- that serve to to squelch free speech and how important it is to. Re- to report what is actually happening, the importance of a free press, even at the risk of one's life, to get the truth out, and 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 the and the the the, the men that w- that are involved in this rakaz being slaughtered silently group, man, they 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 have done extraordinary work, and this documentary is an absolutely necessary watch. City of Ghosts, and um, one of the things that really disturbed me about this documentary too is how. ISIS has managed to incorporate uh, Hollywood filmmaking techniques to create their own pro-ISIS propaganda videos to recruit people to their cause, especially young children. And they have like these slick production values and something like something that's like straight out of a movie, except that the people that are, that are getting shot and killed in their ISIS videos are real people and those are real bullets and nothing is being faked or staged. And it's just mind-blowing. And... You know, this is a documentary that I absolutely recommend people to see. I, I will say that a word of caution, you do see some extremely graphic footage. And um but but again, it is a it is a necessary view, especially for those who seek to, you know, wreak havoc on free speech. So City of Ghosts is my favorite documentary of the year. Absolutely worth your time. For Amazon Prime users, please check it out as soon as you can. And so now, now that we have that out of the way, we can get into my top 20 favorite films of the year. And um, this list is actually alphabetical, uh, except for my uh, number one film, which I'll leave for last. So I'll be, going, I'll be going through my list alphabetically from Z to A. And the reason why I have my list uh, alphabetical is because I find it's too much of a exercise in splitting hairs as figuring out, okay, what's number one versus number two, and then what's number three, and then how, where, where should I rank number four, and, and so on. It, it's just it's just maddening to figure out like which film is better than the other. So you know, to cut through all that rigmarole, I decided, hey, why don't I just alphabetize my list of films, the first nineteen, and then leave my number one film a, as the as the last one that I'll get into. So, with that said, we'll begin with uh, the uh, 20th, the number 20 uh, film on my on my list, going from Z to A, beginning with the uh, extraordinary anime, Your Name, which I reviewed earlier this year on the podcast. And this is a uh, anime feature, by, written and directed by Makoto Shinkai. And this is a, you know, st- stunning... A stunning and gorgeous-looking uh, animated anime feature, and it uh, it's about it tells the story of a high school girl named Mitsua, and a high school boy named Taki. And one day they just uh, wake up and they fi- and they find out that they've switched bodies. So Mitsuha wakes up in Taki's body, and Taki wakes up in Mitsuha's body, and and they're figuring out, okay, what what is going on? How do we deal with this, you know, sudden gender swap? And so throughout the film, they're actually actually try to figure out. They actually start figuring out, okay, you know, who they switch bodies with, and so they leave clues to figure out, okay, how can I help you in your life, or how can you help me in my life, and how can I help you navigate, you know, my day to day life, and so on. And so they kind of leave different different clues, you know, throughout the film to kind of help them, you know, kind of, you know, navigate their respective lives, so to speak. 
And this film is actually quite, it's, it's such a treat to watch. And this film actually was in theaters for a few weeks this past spring. And, you know, this, is, this, this actually received enormous success in Japan. And I can see why, like from the quality of the animation to the heartfelt story. Uh, this is a film that, you know, really stayed with me since I, since I watched it. And, you know, now that it's available on Blu-ray and DVD, I will revisit it again. So Your Name is one of my uh, favorite films of the year at the uh, number 20 spot. So absolutely recommend uh, anyone to check that out. Uh, number 19, uh, going back from Z to A, is DC's one, DC's one and only good film in their entire DCEU Extended Universe catalog, and that is Wonder Woman. And Wonder Woman, it's a film uh, that is... That is, a, that is a true marvel, you know, so to speak. A marvel in the sense that it's, a, it's the first film in the DCEU since Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, and Suicide Squad that manages to not be terrible like those aforementioned films. Uh, this film was directed by Patty Jenkins. And, man, she Patty Jenkins did such an extraordinary job uh, f- you know, you know, bringing bringing to cinematic life the character of Wonder Woman, the whole world of Themyscira, Steve Trevor, as well, and that entire and that entire world. You know, when you bring the quintessential you know female superhero to the big screen, man, you you got to come correct. And thankfully, Patty Jenkins came correct with this film. Uh, Gal Gadot, she was you know she was she was one hundred percent awesome as Wonder Woman. You know, she brought that confidence that. That that beauty and also that um, that strength of character that Wonder Woman exudes, you know, in in the comics, and she and she fully she successfully fully realizes that that character, and you know this this is a film that is also a landmark too, for many reasons. You know, you know, for years you've heard, you know, studio executives have who have claimed that oh well, you know, superhero you know superhero films led by a led by a female heroine can't sell they don't profit and for many years you could you could point to certain films that didn't do that uh that didn't exactly refute that argument such as catwoman with holly berry jesus christ um electra supergirl from 1984 what else yeah yeah those those uh those films didn't exactly uh didn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence when it came to uh, heroines on the screen, but thankfully, Wonder Woman has set the bar, and I am absolutely looking forward to uh, Wonder Woman 2, which will also be directed by Patty Jenkins. Looking forward to seeing what she can bring to the table with the sequel. Um, Justice League, I know that that film, you know, has sort of, uh, you know, it's 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 quite trash, but I do hope that... Um, as as DC continues to move forward and Warner Brothers continues to move forward with their DC cinematic universe, that they can keep Wonder Woman in their new canon, ignore Batman vs Superman, Justice League, and Man of Steel, and you know keep Wonder Woman in the canon and then build from there because this is a wonderful film, no pun intended, and the, and the supporting cast is great from Chris Pine as Steve Trevor, uh, Etta Candy who was played by. Um, um, Lucy Davis, uh, Connie Nielsen as uh, Queen Hippolyta, uh, Danny Houston, Robin Wright, David Thewlis. Such a great film, you know. And 
I recommend checking this out. And if and if you're and if for some reason you don't like Wonder Woman on cinema, then I can't talk to you. You need to have a stadium full of seats, girl. Bye. Um, Carl Carl says uh, 19 though. Well, here's the thing, Carl. Like I said, um, this is this list is in alphabetical order, going from Z to A. So there's no preferential order save for my number one film, which I will get into later on. So yeah, that's Wonder Woman. And uh, next on my list for 20 favorite films of the year is War for the Planet of the Apes, the third film in the uh, Planet of the Apes reboot trilogy. This this film is the second one directed by Matt Reeves. And what's great about this uh, uh, Planet of the Apes trilogy is that each film has each successive su- successive film has been better than the previous one that came before it. So you had Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which came out in 2011, which was which was very good, and then you followed that up three years later with Dawn of the Planet of the Apes in 2014, which was even better, and then you have the best film of all, which came out this year with War for the Planet of the Apes. Um, man, Andy Serkis is extraordinary as Caesar, and. You know, the, the motion capture uh, technology used to capture his performance and combined with the quality of the uh, visual effects of these photorealistic apes is just it, it, it's just a, stun, a stunning sight to see. And, you know, it, it's, it's definitely um, groundbreaking in its visual, visual effects work. And Andy Serkis, man, just, just, just such a great job. I mean, this... this this is one of the many Andy Serkis performances, especially like with his work as Gollum as well in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where, you know, you can make a case of the of how there should be a category, an awards category for best motion capture performance. And if there were, then Andy Serkis would be the Daniel Day Lewis of that category because he's that good in this film. Uh, Woody Harrelson, who plays the colonel, who plays the the strongest and most uh, calculating antagonist in this trilogy of films, and he has his own reasons for committing the atrocities that he does. And you know, in his mind, his rationale is understandable, even though as horrifying as it may be. Um, <clears throat> the supporting cast is also great. You have um, uh, Karen Conoval. Conoval, who plays Maurice, the orangutan, who is uh, Caesar's uh, main advisor and, uh, I guess, lieutenant, if you will, his main counsel, who also has a who also has a wonderful story with um, with a young mute girl, human girl, who they come across in their journey. Uh, this is the uh, War for the Planet of the Apes is a wonderful and you know pulse pounding culmination of the reboot trilogy of planet of the apes films now i won't give any spoilers but um there there is enough material to begin perhaps a new series of planet of the apes films although if they decide to end the whole the whole trilogy or the whole series rather with just war for the planet of the apes if this is indeed the whole conclusion then i am 100 percent for that because i am a fan of you know, conclusively ending stories instead of just dragging them out, dragging them out like The Walking Dead, for example. So, if this is the end, then what an then what a hell of an ending it is. But if they are going to continue it, then they do have enough ample material to do so. So that's War for the Planet of the Apes, and we have Jennifer Green on the chat. Hello there, thank you for joining us. Um, we. Uh, we do have another film on my list here as well, which I did mention uh, twice on the podcast. 
And this is a film that I, I really didn't have a chance to review in full. Uh, but next on my list and on my 20 favorite films of the year is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And this film stars Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, uh, John Hawks, Peter Dinklage, and Lucas Hedges. And this was written and directed by Martin McDonough, who direct, who directed such films as In Bruges with Colin, Fa- with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, as well as Seven Psychopaths with uh, Sam Rockwell and um, Christopher Walken. And uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's a film that, as I mentioned uh, before on the podcast, it's a film that kind of hits every line on the Victor, on the Victor movie bingo card. You have a film that has tragedy. It has a, a character dealing with a terminal illness. Um, it has a sort of dark, depressing tone and some dark humor. And yeah, it's a film that on, on the surface is pretty much like the quintessential Victor movie, as Carl would 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 you know would like to point out. But this is this, but this is a film that I absolutely loved. And in, in terms of the the quality of its script to the um, performance from Frances McDormand, which is one of one of the best I've seen from her. Uh, Three Billboards, it's a, it's a rather darkly comic and tragic story, and it follows the story of Frances McDormand's character, who plays a mother who, you know, who's dealing with, a, who's dealing with the vicious you know, and brutal death, the killing, rather, of her daughter. And so um, she's dealing with the fact that, that uh, not, only her, not only has her daughter died in tragic fashion, but the fact that the police have not solved her daughter's murder. And so she's figuring out, okay, it's been a year since my daughter died, so what do I do? How can I how can I keep the the police accountable? How can I keep them trying to solve this case? So she decides to rent out three billboards outside her small town of Ebbing, Missouri. When and she rents out these three billboards which which directly calls out um Woody Harrelson's character, Chief Willoughby, who looks at this and, you know, he's trying to figure out, okay, well, all right, now now you have my attention. You're using these billboards to, you know, sort of throw shade on on me and my police force, and we're trying our best to try to solve your your daughter's murder. And so Francis McDormand's trying to, you know, put his feet to the fire as well as the rest of the police police force's feet to the fire in in solving this case. And and what's great about this film is that it it does it successfully skirts the line between dark comedy and and genuine pathos and martin mcdonough's script is is very intelligent it's very it's full of um it's full of charm and it's also full of it's full of like sharp writing as well and sam rockwell sam rockwell plays this shit heel racist ass cop whose hobbies include harassing the black uh member the black uh, residents in this small town and being an overall shithead and his character also has some layers to him as well so and, and what's and what's great about Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is that it's a film that goes in rather unexpected directions, unexpected directions that feel that feels right, and it always keeps you on your toes. So you're not really entirely sure where this story is going to go or how it's going to end and how these characters are going to be affected. But it's a film that that really that for me it, it it absolutely resonates and like from, like i said from the quality of its writing to its directing and and performances it's a film that i absolutely recommend it's such a joy and i can't wait to re- re- revisit it again and it's definitely one of martin mcdonough's best films um 
would I rank it above in Bruges, which is actually which was my favorite film for Martin McDonough? You know what? I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say yes. And and you know, that's no knock on In Bruges, because In Bruges is a is a great film still. I'm gonna say that's my number two favorite film for Martin McDonough, with three billboards being my number one and seven psychopaths being number three. So again, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Absolutely I absolutely give that my highest recommendation. Check that out. It's still in theaters now. Uh, Carl Bird has responded to my <laughs> to my uh, to my uh, choice. There, he says, "Depressing ass movies." LOL. You need some sunshine in your life. Listen, Carl. I have plenty of sunshine in my life. All right. I mean, I, I, I'm 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 Mr. Sunshine. I mean, come on. I mean, my tr- I mean, first of all, I, I need to I need to put this. This meme to rest. There's been this ongoing meme since we since we've started this podcast about oh Victor likes movies with characters with terminal cancer or Victor likes depressing movies that makes you slit your wrists. Listen, man, come on. It just so happens just because I'd say what thirty percent of the of the okay maybe forty percent of the movies that I review in this podcast have dark themes. It doesn't mean that every single film that I watch you know falls in that same umbrella. I have there. There are plenty of movies, especially on this list, that have that are full of of, of sunshine and, and and joy and sunshine and daisies and puppies and kittens. All right, damn it! Don't judge me. Anyway, speaking of happiness and sunshine and daisies, that brings us to uh, the next film on my list here, and uh, it's a film that I absolutely adore. And it's a film that has received some polarizing uh, reactions for some reason. And that is, uh, right here, bam, Star Wars The Last Jedi. Yes, I purchased the uh, art book, The Art of Star Wars The Last, Je- the Last Jedi, um, which is absolutely uh, worth worth checking out. Um, what can I say about The Last Jedi which I, would I, that I didn't say last week? Um, you know... I, I gotta say, for me, it, it's a film that's even better than The Force Awakens. I loved the unexpected uh, directions that this film went, and it's the same unexpected directions that is the cause of such, you know, such ire and such fervor from many, from what appears to be many uh, fans in the Star Wars fi- in, in the Star Wars fandom, which have taken rather strong umbrage to The Last Jedi. You know, there are many fans who claim that this is not their Star Wars film. Hashtag not my Star Wars. Uh, There are some fans out there who claim that this film is an insult that, you know, flies in the face of the mythology of Star Wars. And, um, and, And there are some who have made this rather bullshit claim that the prequel trilogy is better than The Last Jedi. To those people, you know, have a stadium, have a coliseum full of seats, okay, for making such an asinine statement. Um, the Last Jedi, it's a it's a rather risky uh, Star Wars film, and Ryan Johnson did such a tremendous job in, you know, taking the and taking the Star Wars mythology and the Star Wars uh, franchise in rather unexpected directions and doing it in a way that is done very well. 
You know, it's it's one thing to do something totally different from the, than the norm. It's another thing to do something totally different from the norm and doing it absolutely well and in a way that acts that absolutely stays true to the franchise and stays true to the lore that has come before it for the past 40 years. And the, the Last Jedi is a film that is absolutely needed in the Star Wars canon, a film that could have very easily have been a remix of The Empire Strikes Back, much like The Force Awakens is a remix of A New Hope. And I and don't get me wrong, I still love The Force Awakens, but The Last Jedi is the film that we need because, you know, we always complain, you know, as fans, we always complain about, oh, you know, why are films, why are big budget movies so predictable? Why are tentpole, why are tentpole films, you know, so conventional? Why do they give us the unexpected? Why do they, why do they always take the safe route this film does not take the safe route, and I think we are all better for it. So, The Last Jedi is on my list for top 20 favorite films of the year, and it definitely earns its spot there. I cannot wait until 2019 when we do get episode 9, which will you know, hopefully bring this uh, sequel trilogy to a successful and powerful conclusion, and I have no doubt that it will. So there it is, The Last Jedi. Um, we got a couple comments here. Uh, big shout-outs to Nick Quattrini. Thank you for joining us. Um, he did say that he wanted to see three billboards. Also, uh, the lady with the funny eye. Um, to the bone on Netflix. Uh, and he also says, uh, to the bone on Netflix was a little depressing but good. I haven't seen that, but I will check that out. Um, I thought it was cancer, but it was about anorexia. And I felt horrible because I was eating lunch. <laughs> well, okay, I could, I could... I can totally see why. Uh, I will check out To the Bone for sure. Um, Nick Quattrini also says that, uh, quote, I really liked Last Jedi, but I heard that the cut, that they uh, cut Mark Hamill out and he didn't see this until premiere night. Hmm. Well, that's rather interesting. Um, speaking of Mark Hamill, he did say that um, during filming of The Last Jedi, he did say uh, to Ryan Johnson that um, he disagreed with everything that uh, Ryan Johnson wrote, how he wrote uh, Mark, uh, Mark Hamill's character, Luke Skywalker. But Mark Hamill said that, I'll do my best to help you fully realize your vision. And and boy, Mark Hamill did. And I will say that, I will go so far as to say that Mark Hamill's performance as Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi deserves some awards contention. I wouldn't mind if he was nominated as Best Supporting Actor. I would not mind at all. So there it is. Um, so that's number 16. Uh, next on my list, going from Z to A, on my list is uh, The Square. Uh, the Square is a uh, foreign language film. It's a Swedish uh, film uh, written and directed by Ruben Austlin, which stars uh, Kleiss Bang and Elizabeth Moss and Dominic West. And, and this is a film that I reviewed a few weeks ago on the podcast. And it's a film that it's, which, whose plot is rather hard to describe. But it's a film that focuses on absurd, like absurd cringeworthy humor. And it's a film that lampoons the pretentiousness of the art world, specifically like modern art and also the whole pretentiousness surrounding certain art, art circles. And um, it kind of like, you know, kind of uh, pokes fun at the whole veneer of sophistication, the veneer of, you know, the veneer of having the, having like this cultured cosmopolitan, you know, stance or this cosmopolitan um uh, veneer, if you will, and how that how now people use that as a barrier to mask their rather base desires or rather base instincts or tastes, and and the square is a film that I find it I find it rather hilarious. It's a film that it's rather episodic in its in its 
in its plot. And it's a film that um, it, 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 it kind of makes you squirm in your seat. There are several scenes in this film that, you know, you kind of laugh out of nervousness and and it's a and and why and because it's and much of the humor is rather it can be it kind of it can kind of border on inappropriate but also rather dark as well and it, like i said it's a film that's hard to describe it's a film that the the less you know going in the more the more joy enjoyment you'll get out of it and it's a film that I absolutely adore. And yes, Carl, it is the film that has the guy that acted like a monkey in it. That's yes, it's it's the square. Yes, there is a scene in the square which there's this guy who invades this dinner party, and as a rather twisted form of performance art, he acts like a monkey. So he's like jumping on tables, grunting like a like a three hundred pound gorilla. And he's like putting people, dragging people across their hair. He's putting people in chokeholds and he's like throwing silverware all over the place. And that whole scene is like kind of puts the whole bystander effect to the test. Like if you see somebody acting extremely violently and unusually, like how far would you go before you end up stepping up and saying something or doing something? So yeah, that's the square. And uh, when it comes out on Blu-ray and DVD, hopefully it'll make its way on Netflix or uh, Amazon or some other streaming platform because it's <laughs> it's absolutely worth your time. And um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's it's a one of a kind film. Uh, the next film on my list uh, is a film directed by Martin Scorsese, and this is a film that I actually reviewed in detail in, on on an episode of Victor's Corner way back in January, and it's his latest film called Silence. And Silence is a film uh, uh, directed by Scorsese, stars Adam Driver, uh, Andrew Garfield, and Liam Neeson. And it's the film uh, about this group of um, this group of uh, Jesuit uh, priests that uh, try to uh, spread Christianity in uh, 16th century Japan. And they're in they're in uh, Japan trying to f- trying to find their missing mentor, played by Liam Neeson. And as they do, they they figure they discover that uh, they're that their faith, that their Christian faith, uh, is is deeply at odds with uh, the uh, with the uh, Japanese uh, culture that they that they encounter, and uh, their and the whole film is a rather challenging examination of not only not only religious faith, but also how <clears throat> how one's religious faith can can be uh, can be tested in the face of such. Um, such insurmountable odds and it's a film that offers no easy answers and it offers no easy questions so whether whether you're of the religious faith or whether you're agnostic or non-religious or or spiritual this is a film that has something for everybody this is a this is the type of religious film that that i can get with it's a film that does not that that does not provide any easy questions it doesn't proselytize it's not preachy it's a film that very much offers these tough questions and leaves you to think for yourself as to what you make of these questions and as to what you make of these characters and the actions that they take in this film. And it's definitely one of Martin Scorsese's strongest films in his catalog. And I wish that this film actually got more uh, success and more uh, praise than it did. But now that it's on Blu-ray and DVD, and I think you can find it on streaming services, I think on Amazon as well, or Hulu, uh, you should definitely check it out, and especially if you're a fan of Martin Scorsese's work, because this is one of his best films. 
Uh, so yeah, check it out, Silence. And if you want my full review of that film, check out uh, uh, my Victor's Corner episode back in January. Uh, my next film on my list, number 13, is a film that I wa- that I had the pleasure of watching just last Friday. And it is uh, Guillermo del Toro's latest feature, The Shape of Water. Uh, the Shape of Water stars Sally Hawkins, Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Michael Stuhlbarg, Octavia Spencer, and Doug Jones. And this film, it's a it's an extraordinary film, and it's set in uh, 1962 in Baltimore. And it's about this uh, this woman named Eliza, played by Sally Hawkins, and she's totally mute. And she works as a custodian in this uh, this top secret Baltimore government laboratory facility. And um, they've captured this amphibious man, played by Doug Jones. And this amphibious man doesn't speak, but he's but he kind of looks like a he kind of looks like um. Who he, a cousin of uh, Doug Jones' character Abe Sapien from the Hellboy films, the same amphibious uh, creature, and and uh, and this woman Eliza uh, actually falls in love with this amphibious fishman creature, and this fishman creature has the same feelings for her, and throughout the film you kind of see how their their relationship and their connection evolves, and Michael Shannon plays uh, this. Uh, douchebag character uh colonel richard strickland who's in charge of the security of this facility and he's torturing this uh this amphibious man and uh, throughout the film uh sally hawkin and this fishman are trying to figure out a way to uh escape and manage to you know figure out a way to you know stay to stay together so to speak it's a rather unconventional film sup kyle thank you for joining us on the chat um, it's a rather unconventional film, and it's a rather extraordinary love story that focuses that focuses on people, you know, within the margins of society. So you have this mute character who, who you know, very much can speak for herself. You know, she uses sign language, but she's a rather strong-willed character in her own right. You have um, Octavia Spencer, who plays her best friend slash coworker, who always looks out for her as well. You have uh, Richard Jenkins' character, who plays this uh, guy named Giles, who's this closeted commercial artist who lives next door to uh, Sally Hawkins' character, and he's also, like, her best friend. And he's tr- And he has his own subplot, which is rather, which is rather uh, eye-opening as well. And uh, you learn like how he's trying to, you know, trying to survive on the margins as well, being uh, one of the uh, downtrodden or rather the overlooked in society as well. And and this is a film that uh, not only is a a sort of a a love letter to, you know, the uh, the marginalized as if if you will, but it's also a rather uh, intriguing. Uh, science fiction story which visually speaking reminds me a lot of Bioshock in terms of its uh you know dark green and 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 brownish color scheme when you have this facility you know with the um with the uh, aquatic imagery um the the dark green uh the dark green water that you see throughout the film um the lighting it does kind of remind and of course the setting being in 1962 it does remind me of uh, the video game Bioshock, which has many of the same, you know, Art Deco uh, '60s art style as well, and for me, like as a video gamer, this is the closest that we'll see to a Bioshock, you know, film, you know, realized on screen, at least visually. And so, you know, that's and that's a uh, courtesy of the cinematographer Dan Laustsen, who um, also uh, was a DP for Guillermo del Toro's uh, film Crimson Peak, as well as another film which will be on my list as well. 
Also, the score by uh, Alexander Desplat is also very delightful as well. And uh, The Shape of Water is a film that I would say is Guillermo del Toro's best film since Pan's Labyrinth 11 years ago. And and it's a film that I can't wait to watch again. Hopefully, uh, the Criterion Collection can get their hands on The Shape of Water because it's very much worthy. Uh, it very much would be a worthy addition to their catalog. Um, the Shape of Water has just come out in theaters in Rhode Island. So if you haven't had the chance to see it, please do so. I might go see it again because it's that good. And yeah, Sally Sally Hawkins gives a great performance. I think she should be uh, nominated. Uh, for the for the Academy Award for Best Actress, or at least one of the nominees, um, and Doug Jones, man, Doug Jones is such is, is so terrific. You know, like the way he conveys emotion through body language alone, like if, if through that costume as the amphibious man, man, he deserves equal praise as well. So yes, check it out, The Shape of Water. It's available in theaters now. So we are uh, down to uh, uh, my. Uh, Number twelve on my list here, and this is a film that I did that I also mentioned a few times on the podcast, and it's available on the Criterion Collection, and it is a uh, Personal Shopper, starring Kristen Stewart. And Personal Shopper, it's a film that is uh, written and directed by Olivier Assayas, who also directed um, Clouds of Sils Maria, which also stars Kristen Stewart. And it's a film that has a rather, I'd say it's a it's a plot that's rather hard to describe. But it's also a film that um, it's also a, an extraordinary art house film that's very much worth your time. Uh, this film stars Kristen Stewart, who plays this woman named Maureen, who's a spirit medium as well as a personal shopper for this um, this well known celebrity. And so what she does is like uh, what Kristen Stewart's character Maureen does is like she goes to different like different stores across Europe and buys all sorts of expensive expensive clothes and jewelry jewelry and all sorts of other accoutrements for the celebrity that she works with. And so that's her that's her main nine to five. And so her side job is that she works as this spirit medium and she's working she's still working through the grief of the death of her brother, her twin brother who died of a heart attack. And um, she has the same heart condition that her brother has. And so and so throughout the film she's trying to reconnect with her brother using her abilities as a spirit medium to do so trying to reach 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 to him across from the you know ethereal plane and and the whole and the whole film is a rather interesting study in this woman's grief and how far she goes to establish this connection between herself and her you know her her dead brother and and it's a film that it's a it's a ghost story which is a rather unconventional example of a ghost story because there are certain uh, elements to the film which which are rather tense and it kind of leaves you on the edge of your seat of your of your seat and you're and you're not sure where this film is going to go. For example, there's a rather there's a rather suspense-filled scene in the film which involves just text messaging. And there's a film where uh, Maureen is sitting on a train and she's getting these uh, menacing text messages from this unknown address and each message is becoming more and more disturbing and more and more threatening than the last and even though it's just text on a screen on her smartphone you still kind of recoil in your seat because you're not too sure where this is going to go you're not too sure where you know maureen's journey is going to take her you know and who this mysterious assailant is on the other end of the line and and what's also interesting about this film personal shopper is that you know, all the way to the ending, which I won't, you know, which I won't spoil, 
you're not too sure whether or not, you know, the various signs that she sees throughout the film, you know, whether or not there is a ghost, whether or not her brother is reaching out for her, or whether or not her grief is dictating, you know, her, you know, self, you know, self-confirming awareness, if you will. Like she's seeing, she's seeing her, she's seeing signs of her dead brother because she wants to see them. Maybe that's true. Or maybe her brother is trying to reach out from her from the spiritual plane. And, you know, she doesn't know exactly how to reach, reach back to him. There's enough evidence in this film to suggest either viewpoint. And it's a film that, you know, offers plenty of, you know, rewards in its narrative, the more you watch it. And, you know, and it's a film that for me delivers, for me, like my favorite uh, performance from an actress, uh, Kristen Stewart, you know, she's, she's a, she's a terrific actress as well. You know, don't let, if you only know her from the Twilight films, then you really are missing out on a lot of good stuff because Kristen Stewart has made some terrific choices as an actress and personal shopper is one of them i'd I'd say that this is the best uh, performance i've seen her seen her do as well as uh her previous collaboration with olivia assayas uh, clouds of sills maria um so yeah personal shopper is one of my favorite films of the year also features one of my favorite performances of the year from kristen stewart well worth checking out it's on the criterion collection see it if you have not done so uh next on my list number 11 is Okja. Okja is a Netflix film, which I reviewed earlier this year. Uh, it's a film written and directed by Bong Joon-ho, who's a South Korean filmmaker who did uh, such films as Snowpiercer, which is an, which is an awesome science fiction uh, film based on the uh, graphic novel series of the same name. And he also did a film called, um, I think it was The Host, which was also an interesting uh, monster a sci-fi monster uh, film. And Okja is a rather interesting uh, science fiction film, which also stars uh, Paul Dano, Jake Gyllenhaal, Stephen Yun, Tilda Swinton, and An and An Seo Hyun, who plays the main character, Miha. And Okja is a film which is about um, this world where Tilda Swinton, who plays this uh, this CEO who's, de- who's genetically engineered this animal called a super pig. And a super pig is like this this giant hybrid between that visually looks like the giant hybrid between a pig and a, and a giant hip, hippopotamus. And, and these super pigs are used as, uh, as the number one food source for meat in the, in the world that, that this uh, film takes place in. And uh, Miha is this, is this uh, young girl who has one of these super pigs as this pet. And when she finds out that this same company is coming to collect is about to take away her pig she goes on this uh, globetrotting quest to 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 get back her her pet her pet slash friend best friend, and it's a film that that um, offers uh, a rather interesting commentary on some on many on many themes such as um you know uh, you know the ethics of meat consumption, uh, also the ethics of genetically engineered animals and and harvesting them for for meat or protein or foodstuffs. Also, um, <clears throat> also touches on the uh, food, the food industry's, uh, you know, penchant for creating overly processed foods, which which probably do more harm than good in the long run. Uh, also makes a good case for eating organically, and also makes the case for for why you shouldn't eat trans fat laced and GMO laced foods, Carl. Anyway, um, 
This film is also uh, visually stunning. It has excellent cinematography from Darius Kanji. Uh, Darius Kanji is also an extraordinary cinematographer. He also did such films as uh, The Lost City of Zed, which is which is breathtakingly gorgeous. You can also find that film for free on Amazon Prime. You can also watch that streaming. And uh, the, the the cinematography in Okja is absolutely extraordinary because it was filmed on on 4K red cameras. So if you happen to have a 4K television, it just looks it just looks absolutely mind-blowing. Even if you have a 1080p display, it looks absolutely crisp. And every single fine detail from like the lush uh, rural jungle locales of South Korea to the uh, urban sprawl of the... Um, of of the various cities that they that they uh, trot that they globe trot in, it's just it's just a joy to watch. And Okja is a film that has a message, and and you know delivers it well. And it's a and it's a rather unique science fiction film. And it does feature one of my favorite performances from Tilda Swinton, who's who makes rather bold choices as an actress, and we love her for it. Uh. Carl Bird said in my response to my GMO trans fats comments, he says, I eat what makes me happy. Yes, you do. You do, Carl. But um, you, you, you need to get off that train. You need to eat organically, my friend. You know what? You, 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 come on. take. You know what, Carl? Take a trip with me to Whole Foods. Take a trip with me to Trader Joe's. All right? I can give you a shopping list of what to buy, man. Stay woke. You got to stay. When it comes to diet, when it comes to, you know, proper eating habits, yo, stay woke. And, uh... And Afton is, has joined us on the chat. And no, you cannot see up my nose. All right, stop, stop trying to stop trying to make me feel all self conscious on camera. All right. Anyway, yeah. Um. So yeah, that's number eleven. And uh, now we're getting into my top ten, my the second half of my list. So we're moving right along here. Uh, number ten on my list is for me the best superhero film that has, that has not only come out this year but also one of the very best examples of the superhero genre. And this film is Logan. And Logan is a film um, which is not only, for me, the best X-Men-themed film or film set in the X-Men universe, but also, also features two of the, or three of the best acting performances I've seen uh, from Hugh Jackman, Sir Patrick Stewart, and Daphne Keene, who plays Laura, or X-23, the daughter of Wolverine. Man, Logan is an extraordinary feature for several reasons, because this is a film that, um, uh, written, uh, directed by James Mangold, who also directed uh, The Wolverine in 2013, it's a film that is not only an extraordinary swan song to Hugh Jackman's role as Wolverine, who has been playing that character for 18 years since uh, since X-Men, the first X-Men film in 2000, but Hugh Jackman also delivers his best you know, performance, his best turn as Wolverine in this film. And this film is a loose adaptation of the comic series Old Man Logan, written by Mark Miller. And and it's a film that takes place in the year 2029, where where Hugh Jackman's character Logan is is basically at the end of his rope physically. You know, he's old. He's like he's basically two, over two centuries old at that point. His body is breaking down on him. His healing factor can't heal as fast as he as it used to. So he's basically dying slowly. And uh, Patrick Stewart also gives an extraordinary turn, in my view, the best turn as Professor Charles Xavier, who was an extraordinary, brilliant mind, and now he's, you know, reduced to being like this, um, 
this broken down old man in his in his 90s who's suffering from dementia and when you have like the greatest telepathic mind suffering from dementia and per- perhaps early onset alzheimers then you do see some rather terrifying effects as a result of that you know breakdown of his powers and it's a film that sees two extraordinary people at the far past their prime and at the end of their rope and they're struggling to survive and on the one hand, this, that could be the story of the Dallas Cowboys, but no, this is a story that is much more serious and, 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 and has much more, gravi- much more gravity. And the film also, and, and the film is also a, an example of a film that is a, is a strong deconstruction of the superhero film genre because it's a film that kind of, in a way, reveals the, the very limitations of the superhero film genre in the sense that in terms of its acting performances, you don't see a lot of acting performances in superhero films that make you go, man, that was awesome, or man, this person deserves, deserves an Academy Award or, or an award because his acting was that good. Like You can point to like a handful of examples, like, like of course, the late great Heath Ledger as Joker in the Dark Knight. Um, uh, Hugh Jackman in this film and Sir Patrick Stewart, but it's a film that like shows how just how in terms of like on an acting level or a performance level how how limited the superhero film genre is. And Logan kind of you know transcends those limitations in a major way through the quality of its performances. Also, uh, Daphne Keene who plays X twenty three and this is her debut performance. She's a she's like young she's like probably like no more like what 10 11 years old and she plays a vicious vicious character who has who inherits every bit of the ferocity of wolverine but also is very much her own character and uh, from what i hear uh, james mangold is actually in the process of writing a screenplay for an x-23 film and and i and i really hope that that film does continue the the tone that logan sets um I also like the fact that this is the final film of Hugh Jackman as Wolverine because, you know, th- this is an extraordinary way to go. And if and if it were the case where where Fox, now that they're now that they're owned by Disney, if they try to bring back Hugh Jackman as Hugh Jackman's Wolverine, that would be such a slap in the face and an insult to this film because this film is an extraordinary conclusion to not only Wolverine, uh not only Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, but also an extraordinary conclusion to that whole uh, X-Men film universe featuring Wolverine. But also this is this is a very good standalone film. So it's a film that that in terms of its continuity it, it does exist separately outside of the uh, X-Men film universe. So it's very much its own beast. So it's not really beholden to the previous X-Men films. So again which which makes it that much stronger. So Logan is a uh, is a uh, number 10 on my list. Um, maybe at some at some point, I like to give a deeper dive into Logan as a whole because there's a, there's a lot more that I do want to say about it. Perhaps in another a future installment of Victor's Corner, I can dig into it more. But again, an extraordinary feature. Uh, Hugh Jackman dessert and Sir Patrick Stewart deserve recognition for their performances, especially and also Daphne Keene as well. Um, also, uh, next on my list is a film that I briefly mentioned uh, last week on the podcast. Number nine is Lady Bird. Lady Bird is uh, written, and directed, written and directed by Greta Gerwig, and that film stars Saoirse Ronan as the title character, uh, Christine Lady Bird McPherson, and the film also stars Laurie Metcalf as her mom. And the whole film, Lady Bird, is a coming-of-age story written and directed by Greta Gerwig, and it's sort of like a, 
it can be seen as like a sort of a semi-autobiographical tale uh, because uh, Gorig did grow up in Sacramento, California. And so this film could kind of be seen as like her semi-autobiographical take. And uh, Saoirse Ronan gives a great performance as the title character who's like the self-absorbed teenager who's you know, trying to, who's like on her way to college and she's trying to, you know, navigate her last week of, her last year of high school. And, you know, she's dealing with like typical high school stuff like, uh, you know, like, you know, dealing with high school crushes, trying to, you know, make the grade. Also, you know, trying to, you know, trying to make, trying to, you know, trying to find herself, if you will. And the film is a wonderful, wonderful comedy, coming of age comedy. It's full of great dialogue um, a great performance by Saoirse Ronan, perhaps the best performance I've seen her. And, you know, Saoirse Ronan, like, she's been coming up in a major way as an actress, you know, from her 2015 film Brooklyn, which is very good, um, even all the way back to her debut performance in 2007 in the, in the film Atonement. Uh, she's she's definitely on the come up as one of the major young actresses to see. And, man, she does great work in this film. Greta Gorig writes and writes a, a a great script like i said full of great dialogue and, and and great moments which feels very true to life i really think that uh, greta gorig should be recognized as a director and as a as a screenwriter in, in in this in this uh this awards cycle and um and and given how good this film ladybird is I really want to see more work from Greta Gerwig as well. And I do want to go back and watch some of the films that she starred in. Like, I still haven't seen uh, Francis Ha, which was directed by Noah Baumbach, and she stars in that film. And I heard that was very good. That was also on the Criterion Collection, as well as on Netflix. So I might check that out as well. Um, <clears throat> Afton says, Wizard of Oz. Um, I don't know what Wizard of Oz is in is in reference to. Um uh, if you're talking, I don't, I don't think Saoirse Ronan was in Wizard of Oz. You might be thinking of um, uh, Emma Stone. No, 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 Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis was in um, Oz: The Great and Powerful. That was the that was the last Oz theme film that came out. Uh, but but yeah, check out Lady Lady Bird. Lady Bird is still in theaters now. Uh, number eight. Number eight is a film that I reviewed earlier this year, this past February, in fact, and it is a sequel. John Wick Chapter Two. Very pleased that this film managed to stay on my top twenty film, top twenty list uh, all year. Um, this is this is the direct sequel to the twenty fourteen film John Wick, starring Keanu Reeves as the world's most pissed off dog owner. Um, this film is full of bullets and headshots, headshots galore. Um, John Wick uh, commits more headshots, more headshots than a homicidal photographer, and it's a film that uh, is, is full of. It's full of killer action, um, creative, creatively staged action as well, and uh, all, also features some great action cinematography from uh, Dan Dan Lauston as well, who also uh, did the cinematography for The Shape of Water. Uh, and and if you haven't seen if if you haven't seen John Wick Chapter One, then you need to see that because that film bleeds into this film. And you know what? I cannot wait until John Wick Chapter Three. I think Chapter Three comes out in twenty nineteen. And you know what? I can't wait for that because it's going to be a hell of a trilogy. Um, Keanu Reeves is definitely a, definitely one of the great um, action stars. You know, if you if you look at the first Matrix film, and of course Point Break. Who doesn't like the first Point Break? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, 
I, 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 I can't say anything more about John Wick chapter, chapter 2. It speaks for itself. Go watch it if you're a fan of action films. And if you're not a fan of John Wick Chapter 2, then there's something wrong with your brain. Uh, next on my list, uh, going moving backwards alphabetically, this is a film that I am so pleased to have watched. I've seen this film three times now. Actually, no, four times. And it's a film written and directed by Jordan Peele, and it's called Get Out. Uh, Get Out is a film that... Um, it's 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 a it's a screen it's a film whose which uh, screenplay uh, by Jordan Peele is full of rich layers. It's full of rich textual themes of um, you know you know racism specifically that left wing you know well meaning liberal racism that passive aggressive uh, prejudice form of prejudice as well. Um, it, it, it's a film that's very much a social thriller, a suspense film. It's it's got it's got touches of comedy in it it's an outright horror film especially in its last third um man it's a film that for me has the best original screenplay of the year and jordan peele man he he his screenplay is incredibly tight and daniel kaluuya who plays the main character chris you know he also did some fine work here as the main character who's the one the lone uh black person in this uh secluded suburbs and you know what they say in the suburbs no one can hear you scream and it's very much true for this film uh it, it it's a film that uh is is that that i that you can just break down and analyze from start to finish and I did, I did get into a little bit of of an analysis when we talked when I mentioned a few weeks ago about the uh, Jordan Peele's uh, video that he did on on Vanity Fair on YouTube when he when he broke down certain fan theories concerning Get Out. And I do want to break down this film even in even more detail. So perhaps there will be a future uh, Victor's Corner where where I'll actually focus on this film specifically and break down you know why it's so you know rich in its in its in its textual themes um also yes you're welcome carl uh, uh i did i did remind carl to pick up the uh, john wick comic which is out in in stores now uh john wick issue one which i believe is a prequel to the first film uh so yes if you haven't seen get out i absolutely recommend it um and and if you do get your hands on the Blu-ray or DVD, definitely listen to the commentary track by Jordan Peele, who also manages to break down many of the themes in the film in greater detail. And it's it's a film that is absolutely extraordinary from a creative standpoint, from a screenwriting standpoint. Um, man, I I just I, I really want to get my hands on the screenplay so I can actually sit down and actually read through it and like, you know, just just glean some ideas from it myself. It's it's one of it's definitely one of those films that inspires me to like actually get out and actually make something creative, whether it's like writing down something, writing down a short story or a screen, screenplay, something. It's one of those it's one of those creative films that makes that inspires you to go out and create. And I think that's what some of the best art does. And Get Out definitely fits the bill. All right, so we're uh, running down to my uh, uh, final five of the li- of my uh, top twenty favorite films of the year. Moving right along, and number five of my list is a film that I reviewed uh, just a couple weeks ago on the podcast, and that is Sean Baker's The Florida Project. 
Uh, the Florida Project is a film that um, I talked about, which focuses on um, poor people on the margins, specifically um, this uh, this young six year old girl named Mooney and her, and her and her ratchet ass mom living in this uh, motel, this this uh, garish motel in the in the in the uh, in the fringes of society in Florida, and how this just blocks away from the extraordinary, uh, beautiful excess of Disney Disney World. And it's a film that focuses on, focuses on people on the margins, and it's like a their their day to day and how and how they manage to survive. And it's a film that it's a film that you know features characters that are are tough to love, but you also feel enormous empathy and sympathy for them. And it's and it's a film that's full of great performances too. Uh, Willem Dafoe, who plays like the main um, manager of the motel, who's pretty much at his wits end throughout the film. But you could tell that he really cares a lot about the kids and the and the residents that live at this motel, and he's always looking out for them. Uh, uh, Bria Bria Vinite or Vinite, who who makes her debut in this in this film, who plays a rather ratchet ass unfit unfit mom who has no business babysitting kids much less raising her own her performance was absolutely solid and and i was and i was absolutely impressed i was amazed at the fact that the fact that she was just an instagram model you know and and she was discovered by sean baker and that's how she managed to get her hand get into this film so again like i said all you thirst traps out there on social media instagram hey you know what you too can be discovered by a talented filmmaker so there's you have hope out there. Hashtag goals, goals. So yeah, um, and and also um, you can't forget the uh, the main actress, uh, Brooklyn uh, Prince, who plays uh, the main character Mooney, who plays the six year old girl who is just enormously, just just on 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 some level enormously awful. But you know you kind of understand why she is the way she is. I mean, she's young, and you know when you're growing up in that environment, when you don't have a lot of options, you know you're not going to exactly be like Miss Goody Two Shoes. So you can understand why these kids are awful and why you wouldn't want to deal with them. But uh, the Florida Project is absolutely a a a wonder of a film, and Sean Baker, you know he's he's one of the most unique vo- voices that I've seen in independent cinema. And if you haven't seen this film, I recommend checking it out. Also check out his 2015 film, which is available on Netflix called Tangerine. Also very much worth your time. All right. <clears throat> Oof, this is like a workout. This, this is going longer than I expected. Anyway, uh, we have number four on my list. And number four is a film that I am very pleased, I am very pleased to have watched. And this is one of Christopher Nolan's finest films. And I think in my view, his finest film as a director. And it is Dunkirk. Dunkirk, which is an extraordinary war film, and it tells the story of uh, four hundred thousand men, British troops, British, uh, 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 British, Belgian, and, and, and French troops who are sh- stranded on the beaches of Dunkirk, France. And the film uh, is uh, uh, is told in three distinct parts, which are which are interwoven throughout the film. So you have a film. So you have one part which uh, focuses on the uh, soldiers who are stranded on the beach, and that takes place over the span of one week. Then you have um, an extraordinary uh, segment where where you have all these civilian boats, uh, which which actually travel to Dunkirk amidst uh, the war uh, war ravaged waters, 
uh, you have these uh, civilians traveling towards Dunkirk trying to rescue as many soldiers as they can off the beach, and that takes place over the span of one day. Then you have the uh, the airplane segment, which focuses on the, these uh, this pilot played by Tom Hardy and his efforts into repelling the uh, Brit- the uh, the German forces from the air, and that takes place over the span of one hour. And so all those time periods are interwoven throughout the film, and and from a from a logistical standpoint, it's an extraordinary uh, feat by Christopher Nolan. And how he manages to balance all of those three segments together in, in rather seamless fashion. And uh, the filmmaking on tap is absolutely wonderful. Uh, the, the, the cinematographer from this film, for this film is uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema, who was his previous collaborator on Interstellar. And the film was shot entirely on, on IMAX 70mm of a large film format and you can and i and i actually had the the great pleasure of seeing this film in imax and it is an extraordinary joy to behold and man like the way that it's filmed it's like you are placed right there on the sands with those with those soldiers who are desperate to to escape desperate to avoid death at every single minute of every single turn and and also too, um, the performances throughout the film. You know, it's a it's an ensemble piece, but some of the performances are rather extraordinary. For example, uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh, um, also Mark Rylance, who plays one of the uh, boaters who actually travels on his small vessel to uh, with his two sons to uh, rescue as many British soldiers as he can. You can see, like in Mark Rylance's face, that. You know, it's something that, you know, perhaps on some level he doesn't want to do, but he feels that he he, he has to answer, answer the call as a civilian, as a British national. He has to answer the call. And, you know, he, he figures, well, you know what? I may not be a soldier, but I'm going to do my part to aid in this war and, and rescue our boys. And, you know, his performance is rather subtle and also very powerful in its own right. And Kenneth Branagh, he also he also delivers a very good turn as well in, the, in his brief appearance in this film. Also, Dunkirk features a uh, an amazing score by Hans Zimmer, and Hans Zimmer, man, his score in this in this film is is also a work of art because he, he uses he uses a, a a ticking a ticking stopwatch motif, late motif. So you hear the ticking, the constant ticking throughout the soundtrack, and as you're watching the film, when you when the film hits its high notes and it's like bass heavy and it's bass heavy uh, tones. Um, the the score throughout Dunkirk is nonstop, so the the mu- the music never stops throughout the film. So it also adds to the to the unrelenting chaos that you experience along with these characters in this film, and so and so taken taken together as as a whole package from a technical level, a filmmaking level, a performance level, um, cinematography score directing dunkirk has it all and i think that in terms of directing this is christopher nolan's best uh best film as a director um i i still i still would rank his some other films as higher than this as, as in terms of personal preference i write i would rank like the dark knight and inception and interstellar as perhaps above this but this is clearly one of the best films of the year and i strongly believe that christopher nolan deserves an academy award for directing for dunkirk and I think it's still extraordinary that, in and of itself, that Christopher Nolan has never been nominated for Best Director at the Oscars. And if he doesn't get a, and if he doesn't win Best Director for this film, then there's something wrong with the Academy for sure. But yeah, Dunkirk, an absolute marvel of a film. Please check it out. 
number two, oh, actually, no, number three. Number three is a film that I'm surprised, um, which I'm rather disappointed that it hasn't received as much uh, notice or as much or as much uh, praise um, g- going toward the end of this year. Although it did receive tremendous praise when it came out, but it, it sort of like fizzled out afterwards. Uh, my number three film is Detroit. And Detroit was a film that I reviewed this past August on the podcast. And this film is uh, based on the uh, Algiers Motel incident. Uh, during Detroit's 1967 uh, 12th Street riots, which was uh, which involved uh, which involved uh, some several uh, several uh, African Americans as well as the uh, uh, Detroit Police Department, and uh, this, this this is a film that is that even though it, it 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 depicts an incident which takes place over 50 years ago, that exact same incident could take place could very well take place today, because this film touches on police brutality, touches on racism racism discrimination and also it also shows just how just how just how much progress that we still need to make in terms of race relations i mean detroit is a film which was uh, directed by catherine bigelow and uh, who also directed zero dark 30 and the hurt locker and it's written also written by mark bull and um detroit is a film that is just absolutely a necessary uh, viewing experience. Um, it touches on racism in a major way. That's that's still that's still all too relevant and all too heartbreaking and all too tragic uh, in our days and times. Uh, the film stars John Boyega, Algie Smith, Jason Mitchell, uh, and also Anthony Mackie, and also Will Poulter. And Will Poulter, God damn it, I fucking hated his character in this film because Will Poulter plays this racist ass douchebag fuckface cop who's one of the absolute worst motherfuckers i've seen on on screen um i mean yeah it's uh his character is so evil so unrepentant so racist so hateful so man every time i saw his character on screen my blood pressure built because his character was just so loathsome and the shit that he pulls in this film is just angering and it and it doesn't and he plays such a dirty cop in this film that if you have any animosity towards the police this film is his character will not help you in that respect oh man you know what i'm getting ahead of myself because that's how that's how that's how powerful Will Poulter's performance is in that film. I mean, and I think Will Poulter deserves an Oscar nomination uh, for his performance in Detroit because he was that good. And I gotta say, man, Detroit is a film that, you know, as upsetting as it is, it's still very, it's still all too relevant to 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 our current, you know, social and politi- political climate. And it's a film that is available on Blu-ray and DVD. And I absolutely recommend people. Uh, to actually ch- to check it out and have a dialogue, have a discussion, you know, with with friends, and you know, talk about the film and and the issues and the questions that it raises because it it very much is a necessary film, and Catherine Bigelow, you know, does such a great job directing, and you know, she's one of the best filmmakers that we have today. Um, but yeah, um, and if my and if my reaction to that film is of any indication. Um, it's not a film that you're gonna. I don't recommend Det- watching Detroit if you're in the mood to for a feel good experience because it's not a feel good experience. Um, some films aren't a feel good experience, but it's well done. It's well made, and like I said, you have to see it because it's a film that 
I, that encourages you to stay woke. If nothing else, especially in these in these current days and times, staying woke is the most important thing of all. All right. Okay, so we're almost done here. We're we're at our number two spot. <clears throat> number two on my list of top twenty favorite films of the year is Dis- is Disney Pixar's latest feature, Coco. Uh, Coco is a film that I reviewed a couple weeks ago on the podcast as well, and uh, it's a film that that follows a twelve year old boy named Miguel, who's uh, whose family lives in Mexico, and uh, he's uh, accidentally transported to the land of the dead on on the day of the dead, and he's trying to and he's trying to uh, connect with his uh, his great great grandfather who was this famous musician, and he wants to be a musician as well. Unfortunately. Um, since his great-great-grandfather stepped out on his great-great-grandmother, uh, his family has banned music from their family. So they decided to get into shoemaking. And so, uh, and so young Miguel decides, well, you know what? Shoemaking is not for me. I want to I perform music. I want to play music. I want to write music because I'm an artist, and that's my art. And I got I to gotta discover my art. I got to cultivate my craft. And so that's what Miguel does, and um, and throughout the film you kind of see how his journey unfolds. And visually, like it, it, it's a it's a rather delightful film to watch. It's um it's an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous uh, and splendid film visually. Um, Pixar Pixar is no stranger to doing you know well fully detailed uh, films that also hit you emotionally as well. And I gotta say, uh, Coco was a film that made me cry. I mean, I like early, even early on in the film, I was choking back tears because there was one character um, that who's going through something, who's going through a, a, her her own personal issue, and and that kind of made my eye twitch. But I managed to suck back tears throughout the film. But then when the film, when the film, you know, reached its conclusion, when it when it unfolded in its last third. I couldn't help but crying, man. The tears just flew down my face, streamed down my face like a waterfall. Uh, I had a hard lump in my throat. This film made me cry. This film hit me in my deepest feels. And when you watch this film, Coco, you will understand why. Mind you, in the screening that I that I that I watched this film in, you heard sniffling and tears all over the the auditorium. So it wasn't just me. So yes. Yes. Um yes, thank you Afton. I agree. You know, what? I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to put a I'm going to love your comment here Afton. Afton has just said that Coco is better than Aladdin. Yes it is. Yes it is. Coco is better than Aladdin. Yes it is. Um I thank you Afton. You know what? I I I got to say I mean the the reason the reason why the reason why uh, Afton saying Coco's better than Aladdin is because um, um, uh, there 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 is a dear friend in our circle who swears that Aladdin is the best Disney film, even better than The Lion King, even better than any Pixar film out there. Now I am a fan of Aladdin, but to this friend I will say this: Aladdin is great, but Coco is far greater, and. And and I'll put it I'll, I'll I'll put it to you this way: Did Aladdin make me cry? Did it hit me in my feels? No. Did I enjoy it? Absolutely. Did Coco hit me in my feels? Yes, it did. And you know what? I gotta say, from from the from the soundtrack by Michael Giacchino, to the the, the voice the vocal performances, to the to the very song 
which I won't spoil the 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 main song of the film, which which you will hear in the which you will hear in the, like the last third of the film. If you don't, if you are not moved to tears when you hear this song playing in Coco, you have a heart of stone. You have a heart of coal. You you have a lump of coal where your heart should be. And quite frankly, I don't want you in my circle if that's the case. So yes, um, so yes, Coco is my is my uh, is is uh, one of the best films of the year. It's a film that you know has hit me emotionally like no other film has. And man, if I, when I watch this film again, I will add it to my collection of Pixar films. I will I will have a box of tissues this time because man, I was. Mm. Mm. Man. Sorry. Sorry, man. I, I'm just it's, it's just when you it's just when you when, when when you see a film that's just so emotional so emotionally rich. You just sometimes sometimes you're just at a loss for words. Sorry. Okay. <clears throat> All right, bring, bring it back. Get it together. Get it together. Get it together, Vic. Get it together. You're almost done. You have one more film. One, one more film on your list. You can do this. Okay. All right. Um. Uh. Yes. So. Uh. So that's so that's uh, numbers twenty through two on my list in alphabetical order. Now, now, now. Last but not least is my number one favorite film of 2017. And this is a film that I am so pleased to have as my favorite film of 2017. And that is... Blam! Blade Runner 2049. Directed by Denis Villeneuve. And uh, written by... uh, Co-written by um, Hans... No, co-written by Hampton Fancher and Ben and Michael Green. Hampton Fancher was also one of the uh, original screenwriters for the, for the first Blade Runner film. And man, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, it's an extraordinary film and uh, and an incredible work of art for many reasons. Uh, this film uh, stars Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, uh, Anna de Armas, Sylvia Hoax, Robin Wright, uh, Mackenzie Davis, Carla Jury, Lenny James, and Jared Leto. Uh, this is a film that is extraordinary because uh, it's a it's a sequel that is not only superior to the original 1982 classic, but it's also a film that expands on the many mysteries and questions of the first film, while still offering brand new questions uh, uh, as well on, in its own right. Uh, Blade Runner 2049 is a film that that is 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 the best example of science fiction filmmaking it's a film that offers uh offers great offers like thought provoking questions philosophical questions as far as like it's uh um it's uh it's characters it's replicants versus humans like what like what is humanity what makes a human human um can replicants can replicants in this in this world call themselves human even though they even though they're not naturally born um, Ryan Gosling's character, uh, who, who is, which is revealed in the first scene of the film, is a replicant himself, and his his character, who who's uh, named Kay, uh, 
who's a Blade Runner himself. He's a Blade Runner who hunts other replicants. And so his character also has to deal with that whole uh, ethical dilemma. Like, he's an android who's killing his own kind, and that's what he's designed for. But throughout the film, he starts to just, he starts to question his own the nature of his own existence. And there are many questions that, that he comes across in his investigations that leads him to other to uh, other avenues that haven't been explored before so this this larger mystery that unfolds before his eyes you know we're very much in his in his boat because you know as he's discovering clues like we're 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 right there with him you know we're not you know he's not one step ahead of anybody like we're just there trying to answer the questions just as much as he is and Ryan Gosling's performance is perfectly modulated it kind of reminds me of you know that same emotional emotionally restrained performance that you saw in drive or only god forgives where you know he doesn't he doesn't project a lot of outward emotion but you can tell there's so much turmoil there's just so much like a like a maelstrom of emotions and and thoughts and feelings just brimming underneath his stoic exterior and uh harrison ford harrison ford was just great i mean that goes without saying like his 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 deckard uh is is a rather inspired take from a rather inspired continuation from his character in the original Blade Runner and his character his character does yield a lot of important questions as well as to the nature of like his own identity as well and um the and the more and the the less said about his character the better when you see his character it it, it definitely raises a lot more intriguing questions um uh, also, also uh, the the performances from 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 two of the from three of the actresses in, in this film are also um, also very much so very much praiseworthy. I really liked uh, the character of of Anna of Joy, played by Anna de Armas. Armas and Anna de Armas's character Joy is this three uh, D three D hologram. This woman who's a three D hologram who also plays a. Uh, uh, Ryan Gosling's character's companion, and and her three D hologram is kind of like a like a continue like a logical continuation or rather evolution of Scarlett Johansson's character in the movie Her, which stars Joaquin Phoenix. In in that movie Her, uh, people Joaquin Phoenix buys this uh, this AI this uh, AI character who's voiced by Scarlett Johansson, and um, she, and like she's like this female voiced companion who's like his AI partner. And Blade Runner 2049 takes that same concept and uses a 3D hologram so you can actually see this woman as, as well as hear her as well. And, and Joy is a character who, has, who very much has her own personality. Even though she's a product in this universe, she very much has her own identity and her re- relationship with Ryan Gosling is pretty extraordinary too because it's like you have this artificial creation and... You have Ryan Gosling's replicant character, who's also an artificial creation, and yet these two artificial beings are trying to find this natural connection, specifically this very human connection of love or infatuation or friendship or some type of very human connection. It's like two inhuman, two non-human creations trying to find a human, trying to find a humanity, if you will, their human essence. And I thought that their relationship was really thought-provoking, and it really. And it was something that it was something that I found rather unique, and it was definitely one of the main main reasons why I love this film so much. 
Also, you have a, a Sylvia Hoax character, this character named Love, who's very much the, in terms of being the antagonist, she's very much the Rutger Hauer of Blade Runner 2049, where Rutger Hauer was, um, his, his, his character Roy Batty in the original Blade Runner was a rogue replicant who was hell-bent on, you know, reclaiming his life and trying to, you know, extend his lifespan and trying to reclaim his own right to humanity. Uh, the character of Love in, in 2049, who's, who's like the assistant slash lieutenant of Neander Wallace, played by Jared Leto, her character is rather intriguing too because, because th- throughout the film, she's she does she commits these rather horrible crimes where like she's very efficient she's very brutal but yet she always sheds a tear like before and after every time she commits these uh, atrocities and and the film doesn't really harp on it too much but you're not too sure as to how you're supposed to feel about her character even though she's very much the enemy the antagonist of the film especially towards uh k um you wonder if, if, if perhaps she's she's shedding tears because like maybe on some level she's, she's uh, she feels awful about being programmed to kill, being programmed to be a lethal soldier, um, being programmed to being a, a, a lieutenant to a megalomaniac. Perhaps she's shedding a tear because on some level you know she wants more for herself than just being. Uh, the, the right hand, the vicious right hand of this megalomaniac, Neander Wallace. You're not, you're not too sure as to what is the true nature of her character. But, you know, I, I think that the film could have could have explored her character a bit more, but what but what's given from what we learn of her character in the film, it's rather intriguing in and of itself. And and Sylvia Hoax, like her her performance is also is also great too, because like she has that she has that lethal femme fatale edge where, you know, she's very much the femme fatale of this film, but she's someone that you don't want to be in the room with alone because chances are she'll either slit your throat or break your neck or both, but at least she'll feel bad about it. So that's some consolation, I guess. Um, and there's also a uh, Robin Wright's character who plays Lieutenant Joshi, who plays a uh, uh, Ryan Gosling's uh, character's boss. And her character is also... Um, is also uh, rather intriguing in her own right. Even though she her her appearance is rather is rather smaller compared to the other supporting characters, I think that um, her character is is unique in the sense that you know she she's clearly K's superior, but on some level she does respect uh, K as more than just a replicant, as more than just you know her subordinate. She does respect him for you know the person that the person that he is even though that she clearly tells him that you know he has a job to do he has an investigation to follow through um also you have a jared leto's character who plays neander wallace who's a rather unique antagonist and who's this uh who's this uh this this blind whose whose character is completely blind and yet um yet he has like an extraordinary vision throughout the film um, his character is a is, Neander Wallace is a guy who's um, who's the successor of the Tyrell Corporation. The Tyrell Corporation was the 
corp- was the organization that created all these replicants and you know created much of the technology that you see in the Blade Runner universe. In 2049, 30 years later, Neander Wallace is his is very much his successor. Uh, his character is like uh, the world's first trillion, first and only trillionaire. He's completely blind, and he, like he has this um this this unit that he wears on his neck, which allows him to see his his immediate surroundings with all these uh, floating drones that surround him, which kind of provide a three three D map out of his uh, current surroundings. And his character is a rather rather pretentious uh, figure, who, as I described in the, when I reviewed the when I when I reviewed the uh, the the film a, f- a couple months back in October. His character is is what I would describe as what is as what the uh, the Ben Carson stance would sound like because his voice sounds extremely pretentious and he has high falutin' goals about humanity and he's the messiah of he has a messiah complex and he's trying to rise he's trying to bring humanity humanity from the muck of extinction and he's trying to elevate them as gods not just mortals and. You know his his character is just rather. It's 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 rather uh, unique is the word, and you know what if and and should there be a follow up to Blade Runner twenty forty nine? I really want to see more from Jared Leto's character because I think there's way more story that you can tell with him, and the many the many uh just just the very ethics and the very questions that surround that character and his work you know informs the whole film and so i really want to see more of more of this universe and if there's a sequel to be made of 2049 i we really need to see more of this neander wallace character and um and i got to say like denis villeneuve man man he's an extraordinary director i think that this is one of one of the very best films that he has directed and um, he he actually he absolutely does Ridley Scott's uh, first film justice. And like I say, um, Blade Runner twenty forty nine is not only my favorite film of twenty seventeen. It's a film that is a far superior sequel to its original predecessor, and it raises many extraordinary philosophical and ethical questions at its core. And if you're a fan of science fiction filmmaking, um, or if you're a fan of Denis Villeneuve's films, such as Prisoners, Sicario, Arrival, um, Enemy, Enemy, and on Sunday as well, then Blade Runner 2049 is a film that you absolutely have to check out. It is coming out on Blu-ray in January, so if so, um, if you if you have a Blu-ray or film collection, then you need to add this to your collection. Um, oh, and lastly, before I wrap this up, I gotta say. The cinematography in this film by Roger Deakins is absolutely stunning. Some of the best, some of the best visual work I've seen from Roger Deakins, and I gotta say, Roger Deakins is one of the best cinematographers in the industry today. You look at his films like *The Assassination of Jesse James* by the coward Robert Ford, um, *No Country for Old Men*, *True Grit*, um, *Old Brother Where Art Thou*, *Prisoners*, *Skyfall*. If Roger Deakins does not get a cinematography Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, he never will. Because Roger Deakins has been nominated, I believe, like over a dozen times already, and he's never received an Oscar for his work. And in Blade Runner 2049, like the visuals, the combined, his, his, 
the way that he uses lighting com combined with the saturated colors and the practical effects, it all comes together in an in an incredible package. As a matter of fact, pick up pick up the art book, the art uh, the art and soul of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. And if you pick up this book, you can see why visually this is this is one of the most st stunning films I've seen from Roger Deakins, and also. In terms of cinematography, the best-looking film I've seen all year, right next to Dunkirk. So yeah, that's um, that's my that's my uh, take, my hot take on Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Again, my number one favorite film of the year. If you haven't seen it, go check it out when it arrives on Blu Ray in the next in the next few weeks in January. Whew. Well, all right. So uh, that that wraps up the my top twenty favorite films of twenty seventeen. Um, whatever your favorite films are of 2017, please leave your comments below or email the show at codexprimepodcast at gmail.com. You can also uh, reach, you can also find all of our episodes on Facebook Live as well as SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. And you can all, you can also hit us up with that five star review on iTunes as well. And you can also find us on all over the social medias, such as uh, Facebook, obviously, as well as Instagram and Twitter. I think that's it. Yeah, Twitter, Instagram. We're, we're pretty much everywhere. Just Google Codex Prime and you'll find us. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, that's my list of favorite films of the year. Thank you so much for joining me on, on this uh, edition of Victor's Corner. Uh, next week, I'll, I will also take the week off as well. So um, there won't be any uh, content. Actually, no, no, you know what? Let, let, let me walk that back. There may or may not be content next week for Victor's Corner. It depends on my mood. It depends on what's out there and what I can bring to the, bring to the table. But if there if there is an episode next week, I you will get ample notice. So I will let you know ahead of time. But yes, we will be back as the main podcast will be back on Tuesday, January 9th, 2018, kicking off the new year right with a brand new episode of the Codex Prime podcast. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you to everybody who uh, contributed to the chat. Um, as always, we will. I will catch you on the flip. Peace out, nerds, and happy new year. <laughs>